If you got your Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we are at. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're looking at the day of the Lord. And if you weren't with us last time, that would have been two weeks ago, because last week we didn't have a service because of our great Friday service. But if you were with us two weeks ago or weren't with us, uh, it'd be good for you to go back and just to listen. You can listen on the website. You can get a CD, whatever is best for you. But to be able to get caught up in terms of what we learned last time about the day of the Lord. We talked to you about the fact that it was an eschatological phrase. It's a time in which the Lord intervenes in human history for judgment. And we said last time that there are various ways to describe it in the Old Testament. One was the destruction from the Almighty, Isaiah chapter 13, a time of fury and burning anger, a time of doom, a great and very awesome day, a day of darkness and light, a day of vengeance. Interesting to note that that the Old Testament describes for us the darkness of the day of the Lord. Back in Zephaniah chapter 1, it says in verse number 14, near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly, listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Interesting. A day of gloom, a day of darkness. Not just darkness, but thick darkness. And then over the book of Amos, it says these words in Amos 5, verse number 18, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord... For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him or goes home, leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Now that's important to understand the judgment of God because darkness all throughout the Old Testament symbolizes God's judgment. Now, when you come to the New Testament and you have the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, you know that for three hours, darkness engulfed the land. And the reason for that is because God's judgment was coming down upon his son. And that's why it was so dark, because darkness symbolizes God's judgment. Interesting, in the book of Matthew, the 23rd chapter, these words are spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ when he gives a parable about the great marriage feast and how uh, the uh, people from the highways and byways are compelled to come in and they are giving wedding garments, but there's one there with no garments. And it says these words, the king said to the servant, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, outer darkness, utter darkness is unrelieved pain outside of the presence of God. If God's judgment is symbolized by darkness, hell will be symbolized or be a reality of all that darkness because it's all about the judgment of God. And so the day of the Lord is a, is a day of darkness, a day of thick darkness, a day of, of gloominess. It's also a day of vengeance. Back in Isaiah chapter 34, it says these words, Isaiah 34, verse number 5, For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it will descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen will also fall with them and young bulls with strong ones. Thus their land will be soaked with blood and their dust become greasy with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. In other words, the Lord's day is a day of vengeance. 
in which he will enact judgment upon all those who do not obey the truth and do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Over in Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah 61, it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon, or the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. In other words, those, or that verse was quoted by our Lord in Luke chapter 4 in the synagogue in Nazareth. But he stopped with the favorable year of our Lord because it wasn't time for the day of vengeance. It was a time for our Lord to show favor upon those who were imprisoned and those who were captive, that they might understand the salvation of the Lord. But the day of vengeance is going to come. But that was not the time. But it's going to come. So the question comes, how soon? When? Zephaniah says the day is near. So how near is it? Well, if you got your Bible, turn me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And the Bible says these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 1 of chapter 1, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. You could translate it, the time is next. The very next time is this time, the book of Revelation. But note, it says, blessed is the one who hears the words of the prophecy of this book and who obeys the words of the prophecy of this book. And then if you go back to Revelation chapter 22, Revelation chapter 22, it says these words. Verse 7, and behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So the book begins with a blessing and the book ends with a blessing. There's something about hearing these words and obeying these words. Note also these words in Revelation chapter 1, verse number 4. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And then if you go back to Revelation chapter 22, it says in verse number 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. So, you have a book about judgment. You have a book about the revelation of the Christ, the apocalypsis, the unveiling of the Christ. And it's all about his judgment. And if you read about God's judgment and you heed what God's word says about his judgment, there is a great blessing for you. And the Holy Spirit makes sure that Blessings are a bookend to the book of Revelation. It also says in Revelation 1 and Revelation 22, grace is offered in a book about judgment. In other words, God is giving people what they deserve in Revelation. But he begins by offering them something that they don't deserve, which is grace and peace. Very significant. Why is there a blessing when you begin to understand the judgment of God? What is it about hearing the word of God, obeying the word of God, the word specifically about the judgment of God that brings blessing to your life? Well, the Bible tells us these words in the book of Psalm. Psalm 9, verse number 4. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. 
The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord abides forever, and he has established his throne for judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Verse 16, the Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment in the work of his own hands. The wicked is snared. In other words, we've told you this before. We'll tell you to you again. God is best known in the judgment he executes. The best way to know the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the justice of God is all seen in God's judgment. God has made himself known by the judgment he executes. So you take that, you translate that to the book of Revelation, which is a book about judgment. God makes sure you understand that if you want to be blessed, then you hear about the God of judgment. You understand about the God of judgment. You obey the God who judges all men because that's where blessing comes from. God is best known in the judgment he executes. Go all the way back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 7. God tells Moses as he's about to embark on Pharaoh what exactly he is to do. And he says, when Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt. In other words, how is Egypt going to know who God is? unless he stretches out his hand in judgment upon Egypt. You see, in today's modern church, we don't preach about the judgment of God because that goes against the, the emotions of the people in the pew. We want to talk about all the niceties of God. But God is best known in the judgment he executes. So if the Egyptians were able to understand the Lord God of Israel by the judgment he executes. The psalmist tells us that the Lord is known by the judgment he, he executes because he sits on a throne of justice and he judges righteously. The book of Revelation is all about the blessing that comes to those who hear about the God of judgment, the God who is just. And that's why there's great blessing there. And John tells us that this time, is very near. It's next. In fact, you can take that over to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, and say in verse number 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Or, best translation, the Lord is next. This is next. And then you have verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Because the Lord and his coming is next, it's on the horizon, because the Lord's coming is near, there is no need to be anxious. But you need to, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Just give it to him. There's no need to worry. The Lord is next. And so, the Lord, through the pen of John in Revelation 1, says, you're going to be blessed? Hear these words. Read these words because the Lord is next. This is next in line. This is what's going to happen. That's why the day of the Lord is so important for you and me to understand. That's why we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's why we're looking at the day of the Lord. Paul, uh, yeah, Paul was concerned that those in Thessalonica 
had been deceived about the day of the Lord already coming upon them. He's going to set their heart at ease. He's going to help them come to grips with the fact that this has not yet happened. It's going to happen, but not yet. He addressed it earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he says these words. Verse 1. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Remember, the Lord's coming like a thief in the night. Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 2 Peter chapter 3 is all centered around the day of the Lord. Has nothing to do with the translation of the church into glory. All deals with the God of judgment, the thief who comes unexpectedly. And he says these words, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. In other words, Paul says, look, there's going to come a day. It's the day of the Lord. It's going to come like a thief in the night. And for those who say peace and safety, for those who are in darkness, they're going to experience the wrath of God. But us, we, changing pronouns, we are not in darkness. We're not going to experience the day of the Lord. And you need to encourage one another all the time, knowing that you will escape that day. Because God has not destined us for wrath. The wrath is not hell. The wrath is the day of the Lord. Over in chapter 1, verse number 10, it says these words. He says, you wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. There is coming a day of wrath, a day of vengeance, a day of darkness, a day of gloominess. It's a time in which God intervenes in history and pours out his judgment upon the world, the day of the Lord. It's a very important phrase to understand. It's a very important time to comprehend. So, having said that, we told you last time that there were certain signs, certain things that would take place before the day of the Lord that will tell you that the day of the Lord is upon you. We told you about Elijah, Malachi 4, verse number 5. Remember that? That before the day of the Lord, Elijah will come. And we took you to Luke chapter 1 to look at John the Baptist because he will be in the spirit of Elijah. And, of course, he was. And Christ said that if you would have believed my words, John would have been Elijah. But because you didn't believe me, Elijah's yet to come. Therefore, you understand Revelation 11, when it talks about two witnesses, one like Elijah, one like Moses, one like Enoch, one of those men, or maybe they are those men, I don't know, we don't know who they are going to be, it just says two witnesses, they're going to come. So there's going to be a, an Elijah-like person who's going to come and be a witness for the Lord during the day of the Lord. That person's not yet here. So you know you're not in the day of the Lord. We also know that there's going to be a great falling away, a great apostasy. We talked about this last time as well. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, our text, it says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will come, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of 
destruction. The apostasy is a certain kind of falling away. There has always been apostasy. People have fallen away from the truth. But there's coming the apostasy. And that apostasy is associated with the one who is the lawless one, the Antichrist. And because of that, the day of the Lord has not yet come. Another thing you need to understand that during the day of the Lord, Israel is going to flee to the wilderness. Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, it says these words, and there was war in heaven, verse number seven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Whoa, there was no place for the dragon to be found in heaven. Could it be that the dragon is in heaven? Absolutely. That's exactly where Satan is. It says so. Then it says this. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. So we know where Satan is. He's in heaven. He's accusing the brethren day and night. But there's a reason why Satan is thrown out of heaven. We know that he's thrown out morally, but now he's thrown out geographically. He no longer has access to the throne. He no longer has an opportunity to accuse the brethren. Why is that? There is a great war in heaven, and Michael throws him out. Why? Because the church is coming in. And because the church is coming to heaven, because there has been a translation of the church into glory, Satan can no longer accuse you and me because now we're in heaven. That's why Satan is cast out of heaven geographically and comes to earth and he deceives the whole world. And it says these words. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The woman, of course, is Israel. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place. And she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Very important. There are 14.8 million Jews according to the 2020 census. 14.8 million. 83% of them live in Israel. Now, they're going back to Israel. They're going back to Jerusalem. They're not fleeing to the wilderness. And the wilderness, of course, is Edom. We've talked to you about this before. That's, that's where Israel flees to. Why? Because the wilderness in the Old Testament is always described as Edom and Moab. We just read Ezekiel, I mean Isaiah chapter 34, where God has a day of vengeance in Edom. And God is going to descend to Bozrah, the ancient capital of Edom, in Isaiah 63. 
and destroy those who come against Israel. So Israel has yet to flee to the wilderness. When they are fleeing to the wilderness, they're, they're nourished by God for a time and half a time. In other words, they'll be nourished for three and a half years or for 42 months for the latter half of the tribulation. Why is that? Because they will all have been gathered back to Jerusalem because they will have accepted the anti-Messiah as their Messiah because he will have signed the agreement, the peace agreements with them and confirmed the peace agreements with Israel and they will see him as their Messiah and they will worship in their temple and everything will be fine until Daniel 9, 27, the abomination of desolation where the Antichrist sets himself up as God and demands that the whole world worship him. That's going to cause Israel now to do what? To flee to the wilderness, to flee to Edom, and the serpent will go after them, try to destroy them, and he won't be able to because God's going to protect them. So until that happens, the day of the Lord is not here. We also know from the, the scriptures that the Bible also tells us that there'll be dramatic signs in the heavens. There'll also be a, a, a gathering of the armies of the east in the valley of Megiddo, the Jezreel Valley, according to Revelation chapter 16. That hasn't happened yet either. And it says in uh, Joel chapter 2 that the heavens will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. There is so much yet to happen that has not yet taken place. But the key text to all of this is Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. When our Lord would answer a question by his men. In other words, the Lord gives the longest answer to any question ever asked of him in Matthew 24. And it all centers around the coming day of the Lord. So if the Lord is going to give an extended answer to a very simple question, he wants you to take note. He wants you to understand it. He wants you to prioritize it. If he's going to spend his time with his men answering a question, there on the Mount of Olives, there in Gethsemane, then he wants them to understand the coming kingdom of God and the judgment that's going to happen. So if you've got your Bible, turn back with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, you said, well, I thought we were in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We are, but not yet. We're talking about the day of the Lord. We're trying to give you some of the characteristics of that day before we dive into the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians. In chapter 23 of Matthew 24, it says this in verse number 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate or abandoned to ruin. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So our Lord pronounces judgment upon Jerusalem. And specifically talks about the ruin of their house. It's no longer his father's house because Ichabod, the glory of the Lord, has departed. So it's now their house, not God's house, because they treated it with such, such blasphemy. He says, for I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until, not unless, but until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, has Israel said that? Well, the answer is no. They haven't said that. They won't say that until Zechariah chapter 
12, verse number 10, where the Lord says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. First chapter, first one, chapter 13. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. There's coming a day where they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will recognize their Messiah. That's why over in Revelation chapter 1, Revelation 1, verse number 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. <clears throat> so those who pierced him is Israel. That's the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12, verse number 10. And so you begin to understand that there's going to come a time where Israel will recognize their Messiah. And they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, if you go back to Matthew 24, it says in verse number 1, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. In other words, he is leaving. He descends into the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and then ascends up the Mount of Olives. And as they are making this journey from the temple down into the valley up to the Mount of Olives, which is a very short distance. Not a, if you've been to Israel, you know how short it is. And there, the disciples are asking him about the glorious temple. Read Mark chapter 13. Oh, what great buildings they, these are. They can't even begin to imagine that this building is going to be destroyed. If you've been to Israel, you know that some of the stones that build the temple were 40 feet long, 12 feet high, 12 feet wide. And you marvel about how they can place those stones just right to build the structure without all the machinery we have today. But they were a lot smarter than we are today. They were a lot closer to the original Adam than we are, so they're a lot smarter than we are. But they were able to do that. And they were massive stones. And Christ tells them that not one stone will be left upon another. And this is why Israel says that young Yeshua is a prophet. Because he made this prophecy about not one stone upon another. And if you go to Israel today, there, there's this big pile of stones outside the Western Wall that have been excavated that are just left there and never are going to be moved. Why? Because it proves that there was a temple on the Temple Mount. Because the Muslims say that there was, that David, that God has no son, that David never built a temple on the Temple Mount, Solomon never had a son, to, uh, excuse me, Solomon never built a temple on the Temple Mount. David never had a son, and yet they're completely wrong. And so Israel leaves all those stones there as a testimony to the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ and its fulfillment. It took place in 70 AD. Some say, well, what about the Western Wall? Isn't that part of that? No. The Western Wall is a retaining wall. The Western Wall is where Israel goes and they, they offer prayers and they, they, they move back and forth and do all those incantations and, and say their prayers. But the western wall is the retaining wall. And it's nowhere near where the temple was. The temple was up and up towards the north, not where the retaining wall is. So why does Israel go to the western wall? Or some say the wailing wall. Others say it's the waiting wall. Okay. It's really the waiting wall. Why? Because the western wall points in the direction of the Mount of Olives. And they know what the prophet Zechariah said. In Zechariah 14, verse number 4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, 
which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. If you want to know why the Jews go to the waiting wall and say their prayers, it's, it's simply because they are looking directly into the direction of the Mount of Olives, and they are anticipating the arrival of their Messiah who will stand on that mount. That's why they go there. That's why they pray, pray there. And that's why it's such a holy place for Jewish people. And so you begin to understand that. So the disciples are saying to themselves, how can this big monstrosity of a structure come tumbling down? It just can't happen. It's huge. And Jesus makes very clear. Do you see these things? Not one stone will be left upon another. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, verse 3, disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They want to know when this is going to take place. They want to know, is this going to happen next week? Is this going to happen next year? When is this going to take place? Now, Jesus will never answer that question because that question will be answered in 70 AD, 40 years from that time. And remember, Jesus, like every great prophet, would prophesy like those in the Old Testament. He'd prophesy a near prophecy and its fulfillment in order to prophesy something beyond that to show you that if the close prophecy is fulfilled exactly as said, then the long prophecy will be fulfilled exactly as said. So when Jesus made the prophecy about not one stone uh, uh, standing upon another, and it happened 70 AD, it's an assurance that what he talks about now, about the end of the age and his coming, will also come true. That make sense? Now, the word for coming is very, very important. It's a word that emphasizes the fullness of his revelation. Perusia is the word. It's used uh, in verse number 27, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Same word used. Then verse number 37, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Verse number 39, it says, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Parousia is a word that is designated for the fullness of God's revelation. His presence among man. When will be your coming and the end of the age? Because they associated the presence of the Messiah with the end of the age. That phrase, the end of the age, occurs five times in the book of Matthew. One time here, Matthew 28, verse number 20, Lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. It also occurs in the parable, parables of the kingdom, in Matthew chapter 13. For in Matthew chapter 13, it also talks about the end of the age. And it says these words, Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> got to find it here. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 13, and that is going to be found where? Hmm. Let me think. Matthew 13, verse number 39, verse number 40, where it says, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. So the Lord is talking about the kingdom age. He's talking about the sower and the soil. He's talking about how the tares are going to be sown among the wheat. And the tares look just like the wheat. You can't even tell them apart. And the only way you're going to be able to tell some of the faults from the true is at the end of the age. And the angels will separate them. That will take place. And then it says also over in uh, verses 49 and verse number 50, these words, so it will 
will come forth, so, excuse me, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when the Lord uses the phrase coming or parousia and the end of the age, he's talking about the fullness of his revelation in the end when the people, the wheat are separated from the tares, and those tares are thrown into the lake of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, having said that, he's going to give you signs. He's going to give you precursors to the end, and he calls them birth pangs. Down in verse number uh, six, or verse number eight. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Remember Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 said, he talked about birth pangs. When do birth pangs happen? They don't happen at conception. They don't happen during the pregnancy until the end of the pregnancy, right? And they increase with intensity as you get closer and closer to the birth of the child. They increase with frequency. I don't speak from experience. I'm just speaking because that's what I'm told, right? And so as a, as a man, you watch your wife, and she says, honey, I think it's time. Well, how do you know? Because of the birth pangs. And they're coming with greater intensity. They're coming with more frequency. And then toward the end, they come really rapidly. That's exactly the day of the Lord and how it's going to come with increased intensity and frequency. That's why we told you last time about the seven seals. The seven seal judgments spanned the seven year tribulation. When the seventh seal is broken, seven trumpets blow. And the blowing of the seven trumpets happen in greater succession than the breaking of the first six seals. And when the seventh trumpet blows, then the bowls of wrath are poured out and they happen in rapid succession in days at the most weeks. And then the Lord arrives. And so when the Lord talks about these are just merely the beginning of the birth pangs, he's just telling them that you're going to see these things taking place. And when you do, the end is coming but the end is not yet. Because no one knows the day, nor does anyone know the hour of his coming. Now what the Lord does is he tells us this, and then when you go to Revelation chapter 6, the breaking of the seals, they parallel with the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. So let me show that to you. The first sign will be immeasurable deception. It says, so Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. Now, go back to Revelation chapter 6. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with the voice of thunder, come. I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. There are going to be many people who come that are going to mislead you into false peace. The rider on the white horse is the Antichrist who comes without a bow, with a bow with no arrows, and a crown is given to him. He doesn't fight for the crown, it's given to him. Why? Because there's going to be so much deception. The Bible tells us in Revelation 12, verse number 9, that Satan is going to deceive the whole world. Now, has there always been dece deception? Yes. Has there always been false Christs? Yes. Have there always been false prophets? Yes. But not like it's going to be during the tribulation and the day of the Lord. It's going to be way beyond that. And Satan is going to be able to deceive the whole world. Listen, 
It's very easy to deceive people. Very easy. All you have to look back on is this past year and how easily people were deceived. I, I like what, what, what uh, Mark Twain said when he said this, it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. Did you get that? It's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. You can give people all the science, all the stats, and all the scripture, but if they're fooled, you're not going to convince them that they're fooled. Because they bought in hook, line, and sinker to everything that's taken place over the last year. They have been, they've sold out to everything that society and government has told them. It's easy to fool people. It's almost impossible to convince them that they've been fooled. And so, you think Antichrist is going to have a hard time deceiving the whole world? I don't think so. And he's going to do it with signs and wonders. No one is deceiving the world with, with signs and wonders. But there's going to be miraculous signs that take place and that are going to lead very, very many people astray. That's going to take place. And because he is the great apostate, he's going to lead in apostasy. He's going to lead people away from the Lord. He's going to have to convince the world why the church is no longer here. He's going to convince the world that the church was the enemy of the people. He's going to have to convince the world that the church was the one barrier between them and a one-world government, a one-world military, a one-world global economy, a one-world religion. He's going to be able to do that. And to be able to take the mark of the beast? I mean, how easy is that going to be? we got people standing in line for vaccinations. They can't get enough vaccinations, right? Now, I'm not against vaccinations. But you see how easy, and now we want to put them on passports and not let you fly without a vaccination or not go to Israel without a vaccination or not go to this country without a vaccination. And people are going to say, well, I better get my vaccination or I can't travel. Well, you can't buy or sell without the mark of the beast in the day of the Lord, in the tribulational period. So they'll be very easily deceived. That's just the way it's going to be. So my wife was saying today, she goes, she, she got on the plane on, on Monday morning to go to Florida to visit her father and mother. And she goes, here we are, we're all standing six feet apart to get on the plane. You know where I'm going with this, right? Then we get on the plane and we're all scrunched in like this together. It's, you know, you can't even eat your eat, eating snacks or anything because you're all crunched in. So why are you standing six feet apart to get on the plane, but when you get on the plane for five hours, you're all jammed together? Do you see the inconsistency of that? That's the way the whole year's been. The only thing consistent is the inconsistencies of our government. But people, by hook, line, and sinker, they all stand on their own little circle. I remember when the circles first came out in Target. I thought, man, this is great. We can play Twister and Target. Right hand on red, left foot on red. I'm th you know, we used to play hopscotch with all the dots in Target with my kids. And every film, one night, just doing, jumping from dot to dot. I'm thinking, what is this? And it, but people just fall right in line very easily, think this is what's got to happen. And they don't even question it. They don't even ask, where's the science behind all that? Oh, by the way, there was never science behind it. Carl Flug was the one that came up with that neck in 1890. That's why they're six feet. CDC came out three weeks ago and said, well, that's only three feet now. So are they going to move all the dots in the stores from six feet to three feet? What are they going to do next? See? And so you, you have to think about all these things and how easy it is to fool people and to deceive people into thinking that this is the right way. But there's going to come immeasurable deception. People who say, I'm the Christ. And it says uh, in Matthew 24, these words, verse 23, then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. The signs and wonders are so great. If it was possible, it's not. But if it was possible, 
to be able to, lead, to deceive even the elect because they're going to be so supernatural. There's going to be immeasurable deception. And then there's going to be international disorder. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. International disorder. Wars and rumors. Have there always been wars? Yes. Have there always been rumors of wars? Yes. Have there been earthquakes? Yes. Have there been diseases and famines? Yes. But not like they're going to be during the tribulation, during the day of the Lord. They're going to be way beyond that. They're going to be with such ferocity and such intensity. It'll go way beyond anything you can ever begin to imagine. But that parallels in Revelation chapter 6 with the red horse. That's seal number 2. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out to him and who sat on it, and it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Remember, Daniel 8.24 says the Antichrist will be a great warrior. He'll come with false peace. But one of the ways he puts people into subjection is through, through wars and assassinations and massacres and, and revolts. They're going to go beyond anything you can ever imagine. That's why there's a red horse. And then there is inevitable devastation. For it says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Famines and earthquakes. And people's lives will be lost. If you go to verse 5 of Revelation chapter 6, it says, when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come. I looked and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarii and three quarts of barley for a denarii. And do not damage the oil and the wine. Why? Because the oil and wine is used for preparations, for cooking, and for purification of water. Be careful what you do with the oil. Be careful what you do with the wine. But a denarii is one day's wage. One day's wage will pay for one small meal for one individual. The barley, food used to feed animals, will also cost a day wage. That'll feed a small family. So there'll be inevitable devastation because of famines and earthquakes and all that's going to take place. People will be looking for food, doing all they can to obtain food. There'll be an inescapable death. Seal 4. It says, when the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature, come. I looked and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. There's going to be inescapable death. A fourth of the population will die. And we're not even at the end yet. For he says in verse number 8, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth things. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. In other words, the Lord wants them to make sure that the gospel will go to the entire world. Now, how's it going to happen? Now, remember, a fourth of the population is already going to be dead by this time. Okay? And as you go through the tribulation, more and more people are dying. But there are two witnesses, Revelation 11, that proclaim the gospel. 
And through that, 144,000 Jews are saved. We talked about this last time. And those Jews, 12,000 from each tribe, Revelation 7, are going to be witnesses and preach the gospel. But there's also an angel that flies around in heaven that preaches an eternal gospel who tells people they need to repent. In other words, there's going to be this instantaneous declaration of the gospel that's going to take place in the tribulation that's unprecedented. Amidst all the deception, all the disaster, all the death, all the disorder, the gospel will be declared. And God will save those that he is designed to be saved in tribulation because he's going to save Israel because it's the time of Jacob's trouble. The tribulation is for Israel. It's designed for Israel so that he might bring them through the tribulation, that he might give them the opportunity to believe. And Zechariah 13 tells us that two-thirds of the nation will perish, but one-third will come through and go into the kingdom, and God's going to save them because the gospel will be preached. That's why Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Could it be that one of the reasons that the church today is not so excited about preaching the gospel is because we don't understand the judgment of Almighty God that's going to come upon this earth. We need to, that's why Paul said we, know, we regard no one according to the flesh any longer. We're not looking at men's external, we're looking at man's internal soul because that's what lasts forever. And so we're going to preach the gospel, knowing the terror of the Lord, we're going to persuade men that they need to be reconciled to God. That's the way we should be. If we learn anything about the day of the Lord, if we learn anything about the coming judgment of God, we need to learn this, that unless you repent, you will perish. And we need to preach that gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of repentance, so people will give their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. So important. Because the day of the Lord is going to come. It's going to come sooner than we think. Now, I know that 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul thought it was going to come in his day. I get that. My dad thought for sure he was going to see the coming of Christ. You know, he died seven years ago. I believe I'm going to see the coming of Christ. I believe that with all my heart. If not, I'm going to die, right? Because it's the point that the man wants to die after that judgment. So uh, the point of the line is, point, the point is, is that we believe in the coming of the Lord. He's going to translate his church out of here. Sometime after that, the Antichrist will confirm a covenant with Israel. And by the t- when he co- confirms a covenant with Israel, according to Daniel 9, that begins the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. And the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy is that day of the Lord. And as those birth pangs increase with intensity and ferocity, you come to what is called the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's all bad, but it gets worse with the trumpets and the demons that come out from the pit of the earth and the bold judgments where men are scorched with fire and they, wanna, they, they, they just want to die, but they can't. They fall on swords, but the swords break. God won't let them die. Can you imagine being scorched by the sun, having boils all over your body, according to Revelation chapter 16, and want to die so bad that you're willing to commit suicide, but you cannot die? Because part of God's judgment is not allow man to die before he says so. They're going, to have to, they're going to have to face the judgments, and then they will die. So we, knowing the terror of the Lord, should do all we can to persuade those in our family, those who are our friends, those that we work with, today is the day of salvation. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for today, a chance to be in your word, an opportunity for us to look briefly at the day of the Lord. So much to learn, so much to cover, so many dots to connect. 
Not enough time to do it all, Lord. But tonight, we trust we were able to get through those things that you want us to learn, that we might be able to teach others the truth of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.